Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, and we are doing things a little bit different this week. We uh, actually lost internet at the studio where we've been recording, so you are listening to this from the home of Le Chateau T-Dot, my, uh, my apartment. Samson is currently sleeping next to my recliner as I record this right now. This also means we don't have Mike the sound guy, so I am trying to piece this together on my own. I apologize if any of it ends up off. Um, hopefully you can adjust your volume if it's uh, too soft or too loud. I want to give you a couple updates on the podcast before we get into today's stuff, because you know, we've got a lot of news to cover from this past week. Um, we are now pretty much everywhere I think you can be when you do a podcast. I don't actually know, uh, but we're officially on iTunes. We mentioned that last week. We are now also on Stitcher, which I've never used, but apparently is a very popular app. We are also on TuneIn. We are on Dogcatcher. We are on Downcast. We are on PocketCast. We are on Podkicker. We are on all kinds of other um, apps that you can use to track podcasts. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I didn't realize that they were as popular as they are. Um, so if you can't find us, you should be able to find us now pretty much no matter what. Uh, as part of that, I really need y'all to subscribe if you haven't already. Listening to it on our website is great. If you haven't been there, it's fiscamall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. But having the subscriptions makes it easier for me to, um, communicate with you and you give me feedback so I know whether or not I'm actually doing a good job. Um, so please, if you haven't already, subscribe. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review. At some point down the line, I'd like to do some kind of like special subscriber-only episodes that the only reason you get it is because you're subscribing. I'm not going to tell anybody about it, uh, but to do that, you got to subscribe first. Also, we are lining up some of our first guests. Uh, I'm going to have Harold Respass of the Respass Report podcast. He will be joining us. Uh, we'll also have Ian Mance, who is the guy who came up with OpenDataPolicing.com, which is a fantastic website that I talk about all the time on Twitter. And I'm trying very hard to get Courtney Robinson. If y'all not familiar with her, she is one of the senior attorneys on the uh, Finance Committee of the United States House of Representatives. She is fantastic, but she is uh, playing coy with me. I don't know if she's going to be willing to be on the show. Um, but what I want to do is I'm going to start scheduling some guests to come in for interviews, but I'm going to wait to bring them in until we've got our subscriber numbers up just a wee bit because I don't want to have these people give me the, the time of their day and we don't yet have the folks to listen to their message. So that's all coming down the, uh, the pipeline. Also, one last note, once a month, every four weeks, I want to do a listener mailbag type episode where I can answer your questions. So join us on Twitter. The account is at Fiskamall, at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L, and tweet us your questions using the hashtag Fisk. That's hashtag F-S-C-K. It can be about anything you want. If you want to ask questions about a particular area of law, about politics, about Samson, whatever the topic. I can't guarantee I'm going to get to all of them in any given week, but I will do my best to answer your questions. So that's an update on the podcast. I want to give a uh, quick shout out to all the mothers out there. Yesterday was Mother's Day. Uh, also, congratulations to anyone from the class of 2017 who happened to graduate this past weekend. 
Uh, commencement weekend is probably one of my favorite times of the year. You know, my favorite holiday, hands down, is Independence Day because God bless America. Uh, second favorite is probably Thanksgiving because I like to eat. Uh, third would probably be commencement weekend. As a guy who dropped out of college, I have a very special affinity for education and the role that it can play in someone's life. And I uh, got to spend this past weekend at the commencement for the North Carolina Central University School of Law, where I graduated, and they actually let me speak. I'm the uh, the new president of their alumni association, so I got a quick uh, section there at the end where I induct all the graduates into our alumni. So congratulations to all of you who graduated. It was a fantastic weekend for me. Uh, but you know who did not have as much fun at commencement as I did? Betsy DeVos, our secretary for the United States Department of Education. She was getting, I think, an honorary doctorate at Bethune-Cookman, and the students booed the fuck out of her. It was hilarious. Here, have a listen. Dr. Jackson, Board of Trustees, thank you so very, very much for this great honor and privilege. I am honored to become a wildcat. <laughs> Is that not one of the funniest damn things you've heard all week? I tell you, when I uh, when I heard about the story on Twitter as it was happening and someone posted a video from the floor, I just lost it. I completely and totally lost it. It was hilarious. It got so bad, the president of Bethune-Cookman actually got up and threatened to mail diplomas home to the students. Here, have a listen. If this behavior continues... Your degrees will be mailed to you. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. It's just so funny. Look, okay, so for those of you that haven't, uh, aren't aware of why the students are protesting, among other things, Betsy DeVos and her Department of Education back in February to honor Black History Month released a statement to the press saying that HBCUs were pioneers of school choice. It was so incredibly tone deaf and historically illiterate. It just really, it, it, it was bad. It was bad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in the show notes a link to a Twitter thread that we had talking about it at the time because it was just so bad. And the thing is, the speech didn't have to end that way. You know, the part that politicians don't understand that the administrators at Bethune-Cookman clearly didn't understand, is that you can't screw up and try and go on like nothing happened and think people are just going to forget about it. You know, had I been Betsy DeVos's speechwriter, you know the commencement speech I would have gave, at least how it would have started? I would have said, Mr. President, members of the faculty, graduates, I fucked up. Back in February, when we were supposed to be commemorating Black History Month, because y'all only get one out of 12 in a year, and we always give you the shortest one, my department released a statement that made no fucking sense. And then I tried to pretend like it was totally okay. And then, on top of that, just a few weeks ago, the president that I worked for included a signing statement in the budget threatening HBCU funding. I fucked up with that statement. I fucked up working for Donald Trump. But now that I'm here, I'm going to commit to you that I will help you, help your institution, help ensure that historically black colleges and universities don't face extinction. That's what I would have said. Probably wouldn't have dropped the F-bomb. Maybe the F-bomb would have been nice. But 
some type of contrition and recognizing why people are pissed off would have gone a long way to addressing that type of situation. But we just don't even bother to fucking try because, hey, they're kids. What do they know? You know, so to anyone who's any of the Wildcats of Bethune-Cookman who participated in that protest, uh, rock on. You are fantastic. I love you, even though I don't know who you are. And I'm still glad that the Eagles stomped you in both football and basketball this season. But you were right on protesting your administration and the guest speaker. While we're on the topic of race, let's uh, talk about some of the news stories that have happened this past week where the headlines that have been given to you don't actually match the stories. I've got two of them. Uh, one is from the Daily Wire, which is some uh, it's part of the right wing news. I, I don't really know why, to be honest with you. It's Ben Shapiro's outfit. I follow Ben on Twitter. He uh, occasionally has good points, but Jesus. So they have a, uh, a story out that says, here's the headline. Progress, in all caps, Harvard to hold blacks-only graduation ceremony. And the story goes, in the name of progress, Harvard University will segregate graduation ceremonies based on race, for real. Now, if that's not a pearl-clutching lead to a sentence, I don't know what is. An actual university, one of the most prestigious in the country, is segregating their graduations. Oh my God, this just goes against everything we stand for as a country. And they link a quote from a report in BET. Well, me being me, I actually clicked the link because I just didn't conceive how this could possibly happen. And lo and behold, you actually go to the BET story and the BET headline instead says, here's why black Harvard students are holding their own graduation ceremony. Now it's not Harvard doing it. Now it's actually the students. So that prompted me to actually check Google and check the local media, and you actually find out there is a story in the Boston Globe reporting on this where essentially a group of black students are having a party. That's it. They're having a fucking party to celebrate the fact that they graduated from one of the most rigorous academic institutions in the country, one of the most prestigious, an institution founded and funded uh, based on slavery, you know, which is a very common thing. You look, for example, here in North Carolina, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, it is considered a public ivy, but it was built on slavery and slave money. The endowments they've got, slaveholders donated to it. The graveyard they've got on campus, still segregated to this day. So a few students of color decided they wanted to have a party to celebrate graduation, and Republicans are losing their fucking shit. You know, no one bothered to complain when the Jewish kids got together to have a party. No one complained about the fact that the Hispanic kids have been having a party every year for like three years now. But oh my God, have some black kids do it. Jesus, you know, go ahead and clutch your pearls and have some outrage. And I, I pointed this out on Twitter and included some screenshots from the, uh, the Daily Wire piece and the BET piece and the Boston Globe piece. And damn, if a bunch of Daily Wire people didn't crawl out of the fucking woodwork to sit here and come after me about how I was misrepresenting what was said when the headlines were right there and haven't changed to this day. So that was bad enough. I think enough people kind of realized that that story was bullshit and uh, it's been adequately addressed in other venues. But then you end up having a news story out of Fox News where, and yes, I know, don't judge me for quoting Fox News. I actually do happen to uh, watch them every now and then. Love Shepard Smith and some of the other reporters. Um, but the headline from this piece 
from Fox has FBI, Black Lives Matter-inspired cop killings, quote, the new norm. That is the headline. It's a terrifying fucking headline. Oh, my God. We got Black Lives Matter, a protest movement, inspiring cop killings. But then you actually read what it says, and that's not what it says at all. Actually, in the quote in the story, the quote from the document from the FBI says, quote, Law enforcement officials believe that defiance and hostility displayed by assailants toward law enforcement appears to be the new norm. Now, stop and think for a minute what that says, because it it just really, when I read it, I was like, wow, like this would knock me over with a feather. You know what I mean? Assailants are people that are attacking you. You know, to assail somebody is to go after them, strike them, hit them, whatever. So this notion that assailants have defiance and hostility, no shit. I mean, really, is this news? We're actually paying people to report this type of thing? And if you actually continue going through it, there's no reference at all to Black Lives Matter. So where the fuck is the BLM-inspired piece showing up in the headline? So again, this is just more of the same where you end up having people... Um, taking what really states the obvious, that people who happen to assail cops, you know, might have some issues with defiance and hostility, and then they do their best to torture it into something that will help air their racial grievances. You know, that's where we're at in America 2017. You know, seriously, just a, uh, a day or two ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, the Klan and some Nazis got together and had a torch rally protesting the removal of a confederate statue you know now number one how is it that black people need to get over slavery because it happened so long ago but you pansies are sitting here whining about a statue from a war that you lost at the exact same fucking time you know the 13th amendment happened the same time the civil war pretty much ended that's how that all went down you know so it's uh yeah, we are just, we are so fucked as a society sometimes. I have to believe that most people are better than this nonsense, but you, you get on Twitter and everyone's entitled to an opinion and it's, uh, it's bad. So let's, uh, let's transition over to some discussions about our law enforcement. You remember last week we talked about Jordan Edwards, the 15 year old who, uh, was killed as he was leaving a party. Well, at the time, Jordan was the youngest person in the country killed by police so far in 2017, and I guess the police officers in other states got jealous because they've actually killed two more 15-year-olds just in the past week. Um, up in Connecticut, a 15-year-old a was killed because he had apparently stolen a car. Uh, he was a Latino young man named Jason Negron who uh, stole a car and got shot dead. And, you know, I know folks are going to say, hey, he had it come and he stole a car. But the issue we've got is that it's not the job of the fucking police to decide who does or does not get the death penalty. It's your job as citizens sitting on a jury box. All right. You decide who lives, who dies. And then on top of that, you elect representatives who determine the maximum punishments for certain crimes. Guess what? Stealing a car is not a death penalty offense in any state in the nation. All right. Here in North Carolina, you can only be put to death for a few things, all of which relate to murder. If you kill somebody, theoretically, the state can kill you, too. But beyond that, we throw you in prison. We don't take your life because society has decided that we shouldn't give the death penalty for these things. But nowadays we have the cops killing people anyway. And on top of that, 
it's not just the good kids like Jordan Edwards who had done absolutely nothing wrong. It's not just kids who had committed minor crimes like this kid in Connecticut. Sometimes it's kids who just have mental illness or depression and are actually trying to kill themselves but want to have the cops do it for them. That's what happened out in uh, California. A 15-year-old at Torrey Pines High School, Jacob Peterson, was shot dead by police because he wanted to commit suicide. They actually found a suicide note on his body. He was in the parking lot of the high school with a airsoft BB gun, called police to say there was a suspicious person and they needed to check on him. And when police showed up, he pulled his gun. And rather than try and figure out what kind of gun it was or take cover, see if there's anything else they could do, they just went ahead and lit the kid up. They shot him repeatedly, and he ended up committing suicide by cop, which was his intent all along. You know, in both of these cases, folks on my side of the aisle are going to say, hey, that's great. That's how this works. Kid was in a car. He was a threat. Kid had a gun. He was a threat. But the challenge you've got is we've reached this point as a society where we really just don't value life. We talk about it. Republicans claim they're the pro-life party all the time. But they're not. You know, it's a focus on being pro-fetus, pro-birth. But after you're alive, fuck it. Gloves are off. You know, if you do something that can prompt the police to kill you, you deserved it. And even if you didn't do anything to deserve it, we're never going to take them to trial anyway. So those are those two stories. We now have three 15-year-olds killed so far this year. If you go to killedbypolice.net, which is another one of these data sites that I love, we're at 437 American citizens executed by police so far in 2017. It's fucking disgusting. Uh, give you another update. Uh, up in West Virginia, Stephen Mater, who was a uh, police officer, former Marine, was fired when he didn't kill a guy. So a, a guy was in a similar situation. He was suicidal. Mater responded to the scene, and the guy is begging Mater to shoot him. And Mater's like, no, I'm not going to do it. His partners arrive to the scene and promptly blow the guy away. Mater has filed a lawsuit contesting the loss of his job. And if you read through the allegations in the lawsuit, it really is just sickening. You know, Officer Ryan Kuzma is the trigger-happy cowboy who blew that guy away on site. You know, his name was Ronald R.J. Williams. And as Mater was trying to talk him down, Kuzma showed up and just decided to blow him away. Well, that wasn't it. In addition, Kuzma called Mater a coward and said he didn't have the balls to save his own life. Called both Mater and his mother loudmouth pieces of shit who would get an officer killed. Jesus Christ. I mean, the whole idea of law enforcement is that you're there to serve and protect, and you're tasked with trying to make these difficult on-the-spot decisions. If an officer is talking down a guy, that takes us a level of courage that's beyond anything that I've got. You know, to call someone like that a coward is absolutely fucking ridiculous. To say that it's someone who didn't have the balls to save his own life because he's doing his job trying to serve and protect the taxpayers paying his fucking salary just really is uh, really is mind-boggling. So that lawsuit is pending. We'll keep an eye on it. If there are any new developments, we'll let you know. That is out of West Virginia. In Washington, D.C., Attorney General Beauregard has decided that it's time to uh, make sure his buddies in the private prison industry who helped him get elected to the Senate all those times uh, are going to get some money. 
he has released new guidelines for the U.S. attorneys under his command to make sure that they prosecute everyone uh, with the highest possible readily provable charge carrying the longest sentence you can get. You know, now I'm going to note at the outset, this new guidance, it didn't come out before the uh, Slager case we mentioned last week because the Slager plea would actually violate these guidelines. Not going to say Jeff Sessions is a racist, but you can do the math. But what's ultimately going to happen with this is that it's going to end up leading to more people being in these prisons for longer periods of time, even when that's not necessarily merited by the facts of the case or the circumstances of the defendant. You know, U.S. attorneys, district attorneys in every given area, they have a lot of authority to decide what to charge and what cases they want to pursue. So my job as a defense attorney, the job of defense attorneys around the country, is to either decide we're going to trial and we're going to force the government to meet its burden of proof, or we try and negotiate with the district attorney and come at something that resembles justice. You know, their job is not to prosecute and to win. Their job is to seek justice. If you go to uh, these training schools for DAs, they actually call themselves ministers of justice. And part of how you do that is by having discretion on what case to pursue. So if a guy has a firearm and a drug charge, both pending at the same time, and the firearm is going to get him more time in prison, but the bigger issue is the fact that he's a drug addict, and if he could clean up his drug habit, everything else will be fine, it's not unusual to see that firearm charge dismissed, the drug addict do a little bit of time in jail, or some kind of uh, treatment facility, with the goal of making them productive members of society again. Jeff Sessions' new memo tries to get rid of that. He's essentially saying to the U.S. attorneys who are underneath him, you will put more people in prison for as long as you possibly can, or if you decide to exercise your own discretion that you still have, I'm just going to go ahead and fire you. You know, that's the implied threat there. So we'll cover that in more detail as well in the weeks ahead, but this is a disastrous new policy that is going to uh, lock up a lot of people, ruin a lot of lives, and, you know, that's, uh, that's your government. That's how it goes. While we're on the topic of Jeff Sessions and the president and where we're at, I thought I was going to make it an entire week without talking about our Cheeto-in-Chief, Donald Trump, the Papaya POTUS, our parody president. But as you all know by now, he he ended up firing the FBI director. Here's the lead-in from ABC News. An historic shakeup in Washington echoing across the nation. President Trump firing FBI Director James Comey, citing his mishandling of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Now, if any of you think it actually related to Hillary Clinton's emails, please let me know. I do have some oceanfront property in Kansas I would love to sell you at a dirt cheap price. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Even Donald Trump couldn't keep up the story that it was about Hillary Clinton's emails because in his very first interview about the firing, here's what your apricot authoritarian had to say. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. And the reason they should have won it is The Electoral College is almost impossible for a Republican to win, very hard, because you start off at such a disadvantage. So everybody was thinking they should have won the election. 
This was an excuse. What does firing the FBI director have to do with the election that ended seven months ago? I don't really know either. But somehow in the president's brain, that is a logical segue that, hey, this Russia thing is fake, so it's an excuse. Let me fire the FBI director over it and the story is going to go away. I don't know. I can't tell if the guy is stupid, malevolent, or senile. It's really difficult to pick. Maybe it's all three. I don't know. But Jesus, it's, uh, it is mind-blowing stuff. You know, that's all I'm going to say on the Comey firing, because the fact is Comey was terrible. He deserved to be fired. He screwed up on a lot of things. I don't care about his intentions or how respected he was in the Bureau. The fact is he flubbed the Clinton email investigation. He flubbed it again in November when he decided to insert himself into the presidential election. Even just last week, he testified that uh, Clinton's uh, assistant, Huma Abedin, I'm probably messing up her name, but said that he, she had sent thousands upon thousands of emails to her husband, Anthony Weiner, and then had to send a letter to Congress saying, oops, I messed up. It was really only a handful of them. Like, that's a huge fuck up. Going from tens of thousands to just a handful is a, is a pretty big drop. And that's basically how the FBI director historically works. They are a government-financed thug who has unlimited prosecutorial resources, can investigate anyone they want, and can charge them with anything they want. You know, ever since the days of J. Edgar Hoover, who spent his time compiling dossiers on people of interest and trying to convince Martin Luther King Jr. to kill himself, you know, that's how the FBI has operated. We've had reforms, we've tried to pretend like it's cleaned up, but at the end of the day, the FBI director is someone who has given a vast amount of power, Comey abused it, and he deserves to be gone. But at the same time, you know, the fact that Comey is terrible and deserved to be fired and Trump is terrible and fired him because he's trying to hide something, those aren't mutually exclusive propositions. There are no heroes in Washington. You know, the only question is whether or not which side's shit stinks worse on any given day. But if you're looking for role models in Washington, D.C., you're just not going to find anybody because pretty much everybody there is terrible. There are different magnitudes of terrible, but it's pretty much all terrible. So enough about politics. Let's go ahead and transition into our law topic for the podcast. This week's Law 140 topic is the issue of precedent and what precedent is used for, why it matters, how lawyers use it. And the reason we're talking about it is there was a story in the Huffington Post that was talking about the Trump administration. The headline reads, Trump administration cites segregation era ruling to defend its travel ban. And of course, everyone was up in arms on social media because we've already got Attorney General Beauregard, who's got a reputation for racism. Trump has said a bunch of racist shit to get into office. So this notion that the lawyers citing this segregation era case was just absolutely outrageous. And before we get into the case itself, what was cited, why it matters, you have to understand some basic topics, one of which is that lawyers, we tend to come up with you know, sayings for things, definitions for things that don't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. It, it, I'm sure it makes sense to somebody. But one of the things you hear a lot is this notion of, quote, good law. 
unquote. And the reason why it doesn't make sense to most people is because when we say that, we're not talking about an actual law in terms of a statute or the Constitution. We're talking about what is called case law, uh, judge-made law, if you will. Essentially, when we had our revolution, we broke off from England, England has what is called a common law system of government, where judges are tasked with giving meaning to the words that the legislature puts into statute. You know, if you think about it from the standpoint of the United States Constitution, the Constitution talks about Congress shall have powers that are necessary and proper for carrying out its duties. What does necessary and proper mean? You know, that's not something that is expressly defined in the Constitution. It falls to judges to decide that. So we inherited that common law system from the British when we separated from them. And even though you won't see judges cite international law often, you will, when it happens, occasionally see citations to Britain, to Canada, to South Africa, to Australia, these Commonwealth nations, these former British colonies, because they all inherited the same common law system. The basic judicial principles are the same across all of them, even if the actual opinions have varied over time. So when we talk about good law, the law piece relates to judicial opinions. And the good isn't even about whether it's qualitatively positive or negative. All good means is that it's still valid. It has not been overturned, overruled, superseded. So good law is a still valid precedent from a judge. Okay? Bad law is the same type of deal, except it means it's no longer valid. So you might be wondering, how does good law become bad law? And there are a few different ways that can happen. So the most obvious is that the court can decide that its earlier decision was wrong. So, for example, in the United States, there's the case of Bowers v. Hardwick, which was decided back in 1986, that said that laws that criminalized homosexual sex were okay. They didn't violate the Constitution. But then the Supreme Court decided Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, 17 years later, that said, you know what? Bowers v. Hardwick was wrong. It's none of the government's business what you do in the privacy of your own home. So all of those sodomy laws were instantly struck down, and Bowers v. Hardwick went from being good law to being bad law. Another way that good law can change is if, even though that specific case doesn't get overturned, the way the Supreme Court has decided other cases has made it to the point where it's no longer going to be usable. One of the examples that you might have learned about in school is the notion of the switch in time that saved nine back during Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency. During the New Deal, FDR had been trying to push through these different government programs that the Supreme Court kept striking down as violating the Constitution. And as part of that, in his frustration with what was going on, FDR pitched this idea that he was going to pack the court. He was going to add justices so that he could appoint justices who would uphold his programs. Now, that created a big political controversy. It ended up failing. You still have nine justices today. But it led to a change in the votes on the Supreme Court among those justices who were still there. Um, so to give you an example of the impact of that, there's a case of Moorhead versus New York, X-Rail Tipaldo, about a New York minimum wage statute that essentially gave their state's labor commissioner the power to fix minimum wages. 
And the Supreme Court back then ruled that that law was unconstitutional. It was this notion that the Constitution protected the right to contract. It was part of liberty being protected under the Due Process Clause that the employee and the employer entered into a contract together. And as part of that, any kind of minimum wage statute was going to be unconstitutional because it infringed on that freedom to contract. Now, after FDR released his court packing plan, and even though it ultimately failed, Associate Justice Owen Roberts, I don't know if he's any relation to our current Chief Justice John Roberts, but Owen Roberts changed his vote on those types of cases. So you had a new case not too long afterwards, West Coast Hotel v. Parrish in 1937, exact same type of issue just a year later. We're now dealing with a Washington state minimum wage statute, and there the Supreme Court upheld it. They held that the minimum wage statute was valid and it was not unconstitutional. So in that case, even though the court upheld the Washington statute, it didn't expressly overrule the Topaldo case. It just changed how the court looked at the cases like that down the line. So now no one cites Topaldo for anything because the cases like Parrish and some of the other ones where Roberts changed his vote, that's why they call him the switch in time that saved nine, uh, it just doesn't make sense for people to argue those precedents because they're obviously no longer persuasive given what the Supreme Court has done since then. And then the other way a, a good law can become a bad law is either it's overruled by statute or by a constitutional amendment. So, for example, Dred Scott v. Sanford is one of those cases that is taught in every single school in the country. And in Dred Scott, the Supreme Court held that if you were a descendant of a slave, someone who was imported into the country as a slave, it didn't matter whether you yourself were a slave or free, you were not a citizen. You could not have access to the courts. You didn't matter. You were somebody's property somewhere. It is one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court has ever issued. Uh, it's right up there with Korematsu, if you, any of you are familiar with that from the World War II era. And what ended up happening was that we had the Civil War. And after the Civil War ended, you had what are called the Civil War Amendments, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery outright. And then the 14th Amendment is the one that provides for citizenship. It says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And then the 15th Amendment abolished blocking people from voting on account of their race or status as a slave. So even though Dred Scott has never been addressed by the Supreme Court since then, it's no longer good law, obviously, because the Constitution was amended to abolish the holding that Dred Scott had. This notion that you are not a citizen now no longer matters. All you have to do is look to the 14th Amendment and were you born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the laws thereof. If that's the case, you're a citizen regardless of what Dred Scott says. So that is the main ways that precedent changes. It either is expressly overruled by the court or the court rules on related cases differently than they did before, or a statute or constitutional amendment is in place that makes it invalid. Now, in terms of why you use a given case, attorneys use certain precedents for certain reasons. 
The most common is that if you have a case that is factually similar to a prior one, you analogize your case to the precedent. You say to the court, judge, these cases are alike. The court has already decided this issue on that particular set of facts. My particular set of facts are the exact same. Please rule the same way on mine. You also will have lawyers on the other side doing what's called distinguishing. So even though the facts are similar, they'll try and find some way where it's just a little bit different as a way to convince the court not to rule in that particular fashion. So that is far and away the most common use of precedent. It's how you're able to have thousands of appellate cases every year decided without the Supreme Court having to step in because we have these precedents in place to guide us on similar cases. Another reason why they'll use them is that if you've got a particular point that you're trying to express to the court and the opinion, the way that opinion expresses that particular point is very good for your case, you want to take that quote and dump that straight into the brief that you give to the justices. And that's what happened in this case. So everyone hopefully is familiar by now with the president's Muslim ban. Version 1.0 got struck down by the courts pretty much instantaneously. There were cases in Virginia and Washington State. Uh, Version 2.0 was struck down almost instantaneously by a judge in Hawaii, and it's currently working its way up the chain to the United States Supreme Court. Well, the Justice Department cited the case Palmer v. Thompson, which was a case out of Mississippi that had to do with whether or not pools were allowed to be segregated. Mississippi was like a lot of southern states at the time and said that you had white pools and you had black pools and you weren't allowed to go to a pool that wasn't yours. They had nine white ones in Jackson. They had one black one. And when the courts ruled that segregation was unlawful, that the pools had to be desegregated, Mississippi politicians just got rid of the pools entirely, saying that they were shutting them down to save money. Folks sued, saying that this was improper, that the legislature can't just shut something down to avoid enforcing a court ruling um, that they had to desegregate. Well, it eventually made its way to the Supreme Court, and in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court upheld the closures, saying that essentially it wasn't up to the court to delve into the rationale of people who made a political decision. And you think about it, even though the results are unsavory, it kind of makes sense because when you have a legislative act, you have a lot of legislators who are voting on it. And the court doesn't know if 100% of them were making a decision based on an improper motive, if none of them were making a decision based on an improper motive, or if there's some fraction in between those two polls. And then how do you decide what percentage you need of people who acted unlawfully to justify undoing a budgetary decision? As part of the Supreme Court's decision in Palmer v. Thompson, there's a particular line that you're going to see quoted over and over again when it comes to Donald Trump. The court says, quote, But no case in this court has held that a legislative act may violate equal protection solely because of the motivations of the men who voted for it. Now, Palmer applied to a legislative act, so there's an open question as to whether or not that would also apply to executive orders. But you can see how the Justice Department wants to use that rationale and apply it to Donald Trump. Because if the only issue is the motives of the person enacting the policy, then what that precedent says in Palmer is that it's not up to the court to look at that. 
You know, we have to look at the words on the order separate and apart from Donald Trump openly talking about it being a Muslim ban on the campaign trail. Now, will the Supreme Court be swayed by citing to Palmer? We don't know. There's an obvious counterpoint in Romer v. Evans, which was a 1996 case involving Colorado's Amendment 2. That amendment was passed and essentially said that you could not have a anti-discrimination statute relating to sexual orientation. It expressly banned any kind of protections for anyone based on, quote, homosexual, lesbian, or bisexual orientation, conduct, practices, or relationships. In that case, the Supreme Court ended up ruling by a 6-3 decision that you had this issue of what is called animus. And we've talked about this a bit on Twitter, this notion that you are trying to attack a particular group just because they happen to be politically unpopular. That's not a legitimate government interest. So it ends up failing the rational basis test uh, whenever you happen to challenge that in court. So Romer is a counterpoint to Palmer. Palmer involved a legislative act voted on by a bunch of legislators here because Donald Trump was the only person issuing Donald Trump's executive order. Romer could apply where it looked at this notion of animus towards a uh, politically unpopular group. So we don't know how that particular case is going to pan out, but the reality is Citing Palmer is good lawyering on the part of the folks in the Justice Department. We don't like what they're talking about because we don't like our history of segregation in the country. But when your job is to try and figure out how to defend Donald Trump, who frankly is a nut, like he's the worst possible client an attorney could have, that's the type of thing you got to do. And Palmer v. Thompson, for the issue of not delving into the motives of legislators, is still good law. It is still cited to this day. I actually posted, I'll, I'll give you the thread in the show notes, but I posted a picture on Twitter of all of the cases where it's cited. It's cited in hundreds of cases at the circuit court level and lower district courts. It's still used for the notion that you can't invalidate a law just because the people who voted for it were assholes. So that concludes our Law 140 for this week on precedent. I hope that it provided some uh, insight to you. And that's going to wrap it up for this show. We're already pushing 42 minutes. Y'all, I know these things keep getting longer. I promise you it's not intentional. We will shrink it back down next week. Uh, please make sure that you subscribe to the uh, the podcast. Visit us at our website, fiscamall.com, to share your comments. Please shoot me your questions on Twitter, at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L, that is at Fiskamall. Use the hashtag Fisk. And next week, we're going to answer your questions as our first ever listener mailbag or FAQ, or I don't really don't know what you would call that, but essentially the equivalent of Rush's Open Line Friday, except in podcast form and on a Monday instead of a Friday. So send me your questions using hashtag FSCK. Please have a fantastic week, and thank you for listening. Thank you.